This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. Now you talk about believing in the fantastical. Chances of fulfilling just eight of all the prophecies made about the Messiah, one in 100 million billion. How great are those odds that somebody could fulfill just eight of the 48? The odds alone say it's impossible for anyone to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies, and yet Jesus, and only Jesus, managed to do it. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Hello, my name is Bill and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. In this episode, we're still asking, how is the Bible different? I'm sure we all have all sorts of questions on this topic. Is it really the Word of God? Does it reveal the creator of the world? Pastor Jeff is helping us to discover more on this topic. We're partway through the message and you can check out the complete message wherever you listen to podcasts. But here's Pastor Jeff to finish off with his thoughts on why the Bible is different. I was at a time in my life when I was right on the line, and this was the issue for me. Come on, the Word of God, I've got to have something special. I've got to have something that convinces me this is the Word of God. And just because the Bible claims to be, and just because it's accurate in historical references, there are other books that are accurate in historical references. There's got to be something more. What I'm about to give you in Exhibit A, I believe, is very powerful. But I've got to build the stage and then just let it all come out, and I think it will encourage all of us. I do it like this. I want to start by, I was in New Zealand in one of those university conferences, and I had a young Muslim come up to me and say, look, man, I'd li- I, heard, I heard what you said. And I appreciate the loving way you presented it. He said, but I'd like to have lunch with you because I have some things I'd like to say. I said, great, let's have lunch. You pay and I'll pray and we'll eat. And so he paid and I prayed and we ate. And he looked across the table at we were about to start dessert. And he said, Pastor Jeff, I appreciate everything you've said. I've heard it, but I just have one statement to make. And I think this must be popular because I've heard this numerous times since then. He said, I don't see any difference between Jesus or Muhammad. You try to say there's a difference, but they're two great men, great religious leaders. I said, is that true? He said, yes. I said, can I ask you a question? He agreed. I said, is it not true that even the Quran explicitly states that Jesus was virgin born? He said, yes. I said, and you don't think there's a difference between Jesus and Muhammad? Now, he looked at me with glazed eyes as if no one had ever confronted him with that. I mean, Jesus is unique, uniquely different. I don't know how that goes together, but he is different than any other religious leader. Hey, it's, hey, I'm tired, okay? But he is different. He lived a sinless life, claimed resurrection from the dead, and was born a virgin. And if you can't see how that distinguishes him from Muhammad, then that's a whole other intellectual argument. But here's the point. In the same way that Jesus, as a religious leader, distinguishes himself from every other religious leader, the Bible also has a distinguishing mark that in my mind proved to me that it is the Word of God. I can trust it, God's revelation to man. Here's what it is. Exhibit C. The Bible contains the fingerprint of God. Exhibit C. The Bible contains the fingerprint of God. It contains the fingerprint of God. Now, look up again just for a moment. I want to take you back to 1910. 
to the house of Clarence Hiller in Indiana. Clarence had a two-story house. He's upstairs. He's asleep with his wife and his daughter down the hallway. The nightlight is still on, so he gets up out of bed in the middle of the night, wakes up his wife. Some things never change. Go into the daughter's bedroom to turn out the light. His wife is startled when she hears a rumbling and a tumbling down the stairs, two gunshots, and then the slamming of the front door. She runs down and finds her husband dead, two gunshot wounds lying on the kitchen floor. About a mile and an hour later, this is 1910, they find a man by the name of Thomas Jennings. They find him with a gun. The gun is missing two bullets out of the chamber, but this is 1910, so they couldn't watch CSI Miami, CSI New York, CSI Las Vegas. They had, they had, they, fingerprints had never been used in a, in, a, in a trial. And so they took the gun, they took Thomas Jennings, and it just so happened, do you know what Clarence Hiller had spent the day doing? Painting his house. And it just so happened that the paint around the windowsill was still wet when he broke into the house. And so they found fingerprints. They compared those fingerprints with that of Thomas Jennings. And it's the first case in American history where somebody was sent to prison on the basis of fingerprint evidence. Now, why do you tell me that story, Jeff? I need the fingerprints of God on this book. I need something special to make me believe that it is the word of God and more than claiming to be the word of God and more than being accurate in historical references. Although I would expect those to be true if it is indeed the word of God. When I was younger, 23, I had a little talk with God. Now, tolerate this. I thought, God, if this is really your word, then I got a cool thing. Why not? Every time we open it, there's a big hologram that comes up. And it's God saying, this is my word. This is my word. This is. And he's just kind of spent. Wouldn't that be cool? Well, that would convince me. Just open it up. Whoosh, there it is. Star Wars did it. Surely God can. There's got to be something special. Okay, here's what the special thing is. Let me say it and then build it. Now, I, I got to do this in five minutes, and usually I get about two weeks. So hang on tight. Because of the age in which you and I live, and interestingly enough, it's the most doubting age, but in because we live in this generation, we now are able, through science, not art, we can date books or works of literary antiquity. We can know when those books were written. Based on what kind of material upon which they were written or the ink used, we can even date the copies of those books and when they were written by the same type of thing, ink or parchments or papyrus, whatever it is, it has become a science. We can date right down almost to the, within a five to ten year span, when a book, a work of literary antiquity, was published and written, and then again, when it was copied, and how many copies we have. This, folks, is a science. It's not an art, not a legend. Now, we are able to go back and date precisely when the books in your Bible were written. So that when you open your Bible, and you read about time and date and place, and it dates your book, it's not some art, or not some entertaining reading. It's to help you understand that this is a science. We can date when the books of the Bible were written and the books of our first copies and how many copies we have of the New and Old Testament. Why is that important? Because somebody now is going to have to explain something to me. How is it that men who lived five, six, and seven hundred years before Jesus was ever born prophesied over 48 specific detailed prophecies, all of which were fulfilled in detail by Jesus Christ? Now, folks, be careful. We're not talking about general prophecies here. We're not talking about Nostradamus. Who makes a prophecy like there will be an earthquake somewhere in the world? 
We're not talking about Gene Dixon, who died in 1997, who was notorious for making false prophecies. We're not talking about the kind of prophecy that says, I predict, I'm hearing it from God, that the sun will rise tomorrow. Not that kind. I mean, chances are you're going to be right. We're talking about detailed, specific prophecies that we know this makes this what makes the, this what this is what makes the Bible. Can you tell I'm a little excited about this? This is what makes the Bible different than any other book. Forty-eight specific prophecies, men who lived hundreds and hundreds of years, because we can date the writings, pinpoint the exact place Jesus is going to be born, Bethlehem. They specify his ancestry, as do Moses and Jeremiah, that he'll be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, from the tribe of Judah, from the house of David. If you've ever wondered why the Bible includes those boring genealogies in Matthew and Luke, now you know, so that the skeptic can test it to see, to know when Matthew wrote, to know when Ezekiel, Zechariah, and Isaiah wrote, and contrast and compare. It may not mean anything to you, but people sitting up in the British Library, and they find these documents and these copies, they're contrasting, they're comparing so that some of the world's greatest literary antiquitous, those who are professionals, will tell you this. They will say that when it comes to the Bible, it stands on a plateau far and above any other work of antiquity. In fact, they'll go so far as to say this. If you cannot trust the Bible, you cannot trust any old book. Because we have over 5,366 fragmented manuscripts of the New Testament. The closest thing to it is Homer's Iliad, which we have somewhere around 700. The problem is the first copy we have is a thousand years after the original. Where the Bible, we have copies within the same generation. At the British Librarian, he found a copy called the John Ryland Manuscript that's dated back to 105. It's a copy of the book of John, at least a fragmented copy of the book of John. That means legend doesn't have time enough to develop. You could, if you were living in the time the Bible was being circulated, you could say, hold on just one second. I was in Bethany and Lazarus did not walk out of that tomb. That's why when people look at the Bible, the manuscript authority, the mountain of evidence, all of these things are brought to bear. But more importantly for me, you read of a man like Zechariah, who we know lived almost 600 years before Jesus was even thought of. Zechariah, born in Babylonia and returned to Judah in 538 B.C. Here's what he prophesied. In detail, he said Jesus would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver, thrown down in the house of the Lord. And the money would be used to buy a potter's field. Now, again, we don't need the Bible to tell us that Jesus fulfills some of these prophecies. We can corroborate them by outside resources. Now, take David just a moment. David, you know, David slays Goliath. He writes a prophecy. Now, this is amazing to me. We know that he's writing this hundreds of years before Jesus comes on the scene. Do you know what David says? He tells us the manner in which Jesus is going to die. Crucifixion. You say, what's so big about that? Crucifixion hadn't even been born yet as a way of capital punishment by the Romans. So he predicts Jesus' death by crucifixion when nobody even knows what crucifixion is. Now that's pretty astounding. Then all of, those of you who are Bible scholars know that in Daniel 9, Daniel foretells the date that Jesus would appear on the earth the first time, giving the number of years uh, the Messiah would come after the reign of King Artaxerxes I issues this decree for the Jews to, to leave Persia and go to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. Now, here's another aspect, and this is for you younger people who kind of got lost. You thought, man, this is boring stuff. Stay with me here. I think you'll like this one, okay? It's not just that the Bible gives specific prophecies about Jesus. The Bible makes bold predictions that you can test today. 
You can test it. It's called the city of Tyre. Now stay with me. In the 5th century BC, there was a strong and vital city on the Mediterranean coast called Tyre. Ezekiel makes this bold assertion that Tyre, and it's a huge city, this is like talking about Los Angeles, that Tyre would be utterly destroyed and that no city would ever be built on that site again. Huge city metropolis, and Ezekiel makes the bold assertion it's going to be completely destroyed and that no one's ever going to build on it again. A few hundred years later, and we don't need the Bible to tell us this, history tells us this, history tells us this, the prophecy was fulfilled in amazing detail and the city of Tyre was ultimately destroyed. But it gets better. If I were to get you on a plane again and take you to the promised land, to the land of Palestine today, or rather, if we were to make a journey and take a tour of the Holy Land, I could take you right now to the flat rocks that once provided the foundation for the city of Tyre, and it has never been built on again. I told this to a friend once who was challenging my view of Scripture, and he said, Jeff, hold on a second. Are you telling me that if somebody went to this foundation in the Holy Land and started to build another city on that foundation where Tyre previously existed, that it would challenge your faith? My response is, absolutely. If the Bible says, and I would expect the Bible to be 100% accurate in everything that it says if it's the Word of God. And so, yeah, if somebody built a city on the foundation where Tyre once existed, I would know. It would question my faith. He says, well, don't you have a little bit of curiosity to go to Lowe's and buy some building material and go over to Tyre or where it used to exist and kind of build, start building? And I said, I can honestly tell you that thought has not even crossed my mind. God might just take me right out as soon as I hammer the first nail. I don't want to find out. All I can tell you in, that is a prophecy that is still able to be tested. The point is, and this is what did it for me. Let me round third and go home now. This is what did it for me. When I started researching all this material, and again, I'm trying to shove it in a short amount of time, the interesting thing is scholars today who want to attack the Bible, for the most part, have given up this issue. It's very difficult to argue against the fact that we can date the Bible pretty accurately. Now, you still have your liberal scholars. No matter what you tell them, they're not going to believe it. But in the most part, those who really know and understand the study of literary antiquity and who are willing to apply the same test to the Bible as you do every other old work of literature, they assume that the prophecies were indeed made hundreds of years before Jesus lived and that Jesus fulfilled them. It's kind of like the guy who was fishing and he kept catching big fish and if he caught a big fish, he threw it back in. If he caught a little one, he would keep it. So finally a man walked over and said, in heaven's name, what are you doing? He said, well, I only have an eight-inch frying pan. Now, I know some of you aren't going to get that. I'm okay with that. I've made my peace with it. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. I use that example because this is what I feel like when I'm talking to someone who is intentional about not believing. It doesn't matter how much evidence I give them. They're always going to throw it back, shape it to their atheistic frying pan. They're always going to take what I give them and make it fit their worldview. And the frustration is, that Jesus said it's not a lack of evidence, it's the suppression of it. And if I give more and more information to he whose heart is intent on not believing, then I just give him more information to misinterpret. So whatever I say doesn't matter to some people, but I, here's what I want to do. I want to let you know the two primary attacks against the Bible. And when I saw this, my first response was, wow, this is all you got? This is it? So rather than attacking the fact that these prophecies were made hundreds of years before Jesus lived, and Jesus fulfilled them. Here's the first attack. 
they say it's just a coincidence. Now you talk about believing in the fantastical. Stay with me just a moment. Chances of fulfilling just eight of all the prophecies made about the Messiah, one in 100 million billion. How great are those odds that somebody could fulfill just eight of the 48? If I took quarters and I put those quarters over the entire state of California, three feet deep, the whole state, three feet deep, and I put one quarter, a black mark on the top of it, and hit it in that pile and blindfolded you and asked you to choose the one over the whole state of California, three feet deep, what are the odds? The odds are the same as anybody in history fulfilling just eight of the 48 prophecies, given the type of prophecies that they are. That's why world-renowned mathematician Peter Stoner says this, the probability of fulfilling all 48 specified prophecies of the Messiah is equal to the number of minuscule atoms in a trillion, 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 billion universes the size of our universe. He's saying that the odds alone say it's impossible for anyone to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies, and yet Jesus, and only Jesus, throughout history managed to do it. That's why Acts chapter 3, verse 18 says, But the things which God announced beforehand by the prophets, that his Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Now here's attack number two. Somebody says, okay, well Jesus maneuvered his life to fulfill the prophecies. I had a Buddhist student once asked me again to meet, and the Buddhist student looked me right in the eye and basically said this, Jeff, I've heard your talk, and I hear you talk about how Jesus fulfilled those 48 prophecies and how literary antiquity supports the trustworthiness of the Bible. And by the way, we've not even talked about the defense for how we know what we're reading today is what was originally written. That's another sermon, but I'll tell you, the evidence is strong. But he said, I know how Jesus did it. I said, how? His response was he maneuvered his life. He would have been smart. He was very familiar with the Old Testament prophecies. So he would have taken those prophecies and make sure his life fulfilled them. I just started kind of, I said, okay, obviously this young guy does not know the prophecies, but let me just hear him anyway. Okay, I said, give me an example. He said, well, Jesus would have known that Zechariah prophesied that the Messiah would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. So Jesus just arranged a donkey and made sure that he rode into Jerusalem. I just kind of started laughing. I said, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Now let me have you, let me ask you a few questions. Number one, would you like to tell me how Jesus could control the fact that the Sanhedrin would offer Judas 30 pieces of silver to betray him? Would you like to tell me how Jesus could control his ancestry or his place of birth? I mean, he really would be good. That's almost more miraculous than the fulfilled prophecy. Or three, how Jesus could control the method of execution or how he could control the soldiers gambling for his clothes at the cross or how he could control the false accusers at an invalid Jewish trial or how could Jesus control that his legs would remain unbroken on the cross when that's what Roman crucifixion includes? Or how that Jesus could control precisely when he would be born or that the Sanhedrin would use the money for betrayal to buy a potter's field? And once again, I get what I often get, the glazed look over the eyes. The only way that could happen, friends, is if the hand of God was on those prophets and the hand of God was on Jesus, that he was God in the flesh, and the hand of God is on the Bible. Exhibit C tells me that that's what separates it from every Bever book ever written. 48 specific detailed prophecies. And I just think it's interesting that in a time of great unbelief, this is the time when God keeps offering the most evidence. You ever thought about that? What I just shared with you today could not have been shared 500 years ago. It seems the more we seem intent on disbelief, the more evidence God keeps providing. Archaeological digs, finds, Literary antiquity, the research, the study, 
the mountain of manuscripts that we continue to find, it is an amazing, amazing thing. And I believe that the evidence is in, and the only logical conclusion is the Bible is the word of God revealed to man, authenticated by its accuracy, and substantiated by its prophecy. Now, look up one more time. We're almost done. Would you not expect that if this, if this is the word of God, that God would keep it in existence for all of human history? Don't you think if it's the word of God, it should be the number one selling book every year in the world? The Bible is the number one selling book in the world every year. Every year. Nothing passes the Bible. As a matter of fact, I love stories like Voltaire, who said that the Bible would be eradicated and would be dead in his generation. Voltaire died, and his house was turned into a printing press for the Bible. <laughs> That's why there are people all over this world that continue to pour their lives into this Bible. Now, don't get me wrong. I like the fact that the Bible knows me better than I do myself. I like the fact that when I read it, it exposes who I really am. But I'm sorry, as a true skeptic, I just was not convinced that was enough to make it the Word of God. I needed something more, and I found it. And I wish I could answer all the questions that are going through your mind about manuscript authority, about how we know what we're reading today is what was originally written. There's got to be a time somewhere where I can get on this stage, and you can have a mic, and we can ask those questions, because they are, in my opinion, the most important of our faith. Because everything we believe is based on this right here. So I have five questions quickly for you, and then I'm going to end. Number one, do you have your own copy of God's Word? Your name's in the front of it. It's your own copy. It belongs to you, your Word of God. Two, are you reading it daily? Do you read it every day? It takes 18 hours to read the New Testament. For some of you, maybe a little longer. Some of you, a little shorter. Are you reading it daily? Three, are you memorizing it? Are you hiding God's word in your heart? The word of God revealed to us. Do you own your own copy? Are you reading it daily? Are you memorizing it? And four, are you obeying it? Are you hiding God's word in your heart that you might not sin against God? Are you doing what it asks you to do, trusting that it is the word of God? And five, are you allowing it to guide your life? Are you allowing it to dictate how you respond to people who hurt you? Are you allowing it to determine how you treat your employees if you're a boss, your team if you're a coach, your family, a husband or wife? Are you allowing it to dictate because you believe it is the spoken word of God? Here's the interesting thing. If God just came down in some kind of theophany and said to you, Jeff Bonds, I want you to love your wife today better than you did yesterday. Man, I'd be scared to death, terrified. Okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. And yet the Bible tells me that every day. See, if you really believe it's the word of God, the fingerprints of God are on it. You're going to want to know what it says every day, and you're going to want to do what it does. Do what it says. You're going to want to do what it says and let God's power become a reality in your life. Father, we are grateful for your kindness to us. We're grateful that we have a book called the Bible. We are grateful for the exhibits that we presented, especially in the truth of revealed and fulfilled prophecy. I pray for all those in the audience today that are just still somewhat uh, in disbelief, that you would encourage them not to stop asking questions, but to keep asking questions. And in their pursuit, in their journey, it would be revealed to them that this is a very special book, the roadmap to our lives, and the guide to everything we believe. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would activate continually this word as it makes its way into our lives, 
to give us the right word at the right time and the right place, to encourage us when we're down, to give us wisdom when we lack it, to give us courage and boldness to do what we know to be right, even when it's difficult or hard. Father, this is our prayer as we come together today in the name of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Next time, we'll bring you a new message from Pastor Jeff. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.